Welcome to episode number 292. Today's episode is one I'm super excited to share with you, though I feel like I say that every single episode. (laughs) However, it's always true. But today's episode, you are going to love, especially if you are trying to figure out ways to have a homestead, including livestock or maybe larger space to grow a garden without having to necessarily move or buy a larger piece of property. Now, maybe buying that property is a goal of yours for the future, something you're saving for. But right now, you want to make sure that you are using the amount of space that you have or you feel like you're beginning to outgrow that space, but you don't want to let it stop you, then you are really, really going to enjoy this episode because I dive into ways that you can successfully have a livestock and or garden, maybe both, even if you don't have enough space on your own property. Today is the next part in our series where I am basically doing a consult with a member of the Pioneering Today Academy. So this is a brand new series that we're trying out. You guys responded so well to the first part of this series and said it was very, very helpful. So we have got some more coming your way, including this episode. This episode is with Casey. And if you are interested in becoming a member of the Academy, there will be links in the show notes and you can go to melissakinoris.com forward slash PTA. If we are open for new enrollment, you'll see and have the option to join. If we're not open, then you will see where it says join the waitlist. You just pop in your email and then you will be notified when we are open for new members again. But this is a great episode and I do want to preface it though, because I do give real life examples of waves of people that I personally know who have don't have property or acreage and still have success with having livestock. And one of the people that I mentioned is my brother. And I want to be very, very clear with the tips that I give and the example I was giving, which was my my brother, is his cattle are taken care of excellently. He has an amazing herd. His herd is in great shape. It's actually who we have purchased some of our cattle from as we are looking to We're looking to improve the confirmation of our herd and the stock of our herd and that type of a thing. And I don't feel that I said anything that would imply that he didn't, but I just want to be very, very clear because it's using a method where you are not actually with your livestock. They're not on your property, Um, but that his animals are taken very well care of and he does an excellent job with his cattle. So I just wanted to make sure that I put that out there before you listen in. You know, it's always so funny uh, when you do share things publicly, you get some interesting feedback. So I feel like I want to preface things right from the get-go so that there is absolutely no doubt or any confusion in that area. So we are going to dive straight into this episode and this consult with Casey and For any additional links or show notes or any of those things, different resources, of course, you can always go to the blog post that accompanies the episodes on my website. And to access this one, it'll be at melissaknorris.com forward slash 292 because this is episode number 292. So again, melissaknorris.com forward slash 292. Okay, let's get to it. Well, hey, Casey, I am so excited to get to chat with you today on the podcast. So for everybody listening in, um, one, please do uh, introduce yourself and then your 
biggest struggle that you're having right now with your guys's homestead? Great. Well, thank you so much for having me. I am so excited um, to be able to talk to you in person or in firsthand, I guess. Um, so my name is Casey. I live in Northern Utah and I'm a member of the Pioneering Today Academy. And I have been for a couple of years now, at least. Um, and, you know, it's really just been a journey for us. We've started out really small and gradually grown and, um, we're still, you know, it's definitely just, I live in a fairly rural area, but, um, you know, we just live in a regular neighborhood. And so trying to do what we can in our community and in our small area, but trying to decide at this point, if we need to relocate or possibly lease or purchase a different piece of property to expand. So that's kind of where we're at right now. And we're just trying to kind of see what our options are. Okay. I love this. And I think a lot of people reach this point too, where, and in fact, my husband and I, this is going to sound funny. I know to some of you, because we have almost 15 acres, but we're in the same spot. We're like, do we look to buy more property um, or are we, do we look to downsize or not expand with what we're doing and just staying here? So you're definitely not alone. And I think that every homesteader, the further down you get, like you'll, you'll come to a new point too, where you'll kind of have to go through this. So I think this is really great. Now your current house and home is how like your yard space, how large is that right now? So our primary residence where we live is really only about a third of an acre. So it's not huge. It's, it's not tiny, but it's not huge. So I currently have room on the side of my property. I have chickens, um, just laying hens. I have about 10, um, or so, and I have, that's been great. We just have a coop on the side of our house and our kids are really involved with that process, cleaning it out and caring for the chickens. Um, and then I also have raised beds in the backyard. So, um, that's where I grow, you know, everything that I can fit in there. I have a few fruit trees. I have a peach tree and nectarine tree and an apricot tree. And then I also have raspberries and, and then the raised beds where I grow um, my summer garden and then things like garlic. I, I, you know, I put, I planted garlic in that this year and um, things like that. So it's really, I think we're doing a lot of with what we have. I have room to add some more beds if I, if I really wanted to, but it would sacrifice kind of a lot of the backyard space I have for my kids. So that's where we're talking about considering um, doing something with another piece of property or something maybe even leasing some property down the street. Okay, gotcha. So with the 10 laying hens that you have, and you're thinking about possibly wanting to increase your chickens, correct? Yeah, I would like to do something where my kids could have a heavy hand in. I, I, have, the, I, I have the knowledge to care for chickens. And so that's kind of what we're comfortable with right now. I would be interested in adding other livestock further down the road. But again, I would have to have the room for those and it would have to be accessible enough to where I could get over there, you know, daily. So that's the other thing that we're trying to sort of navigate. Okay. So with the other, now you guys also do have another piece of property, but it's not really close by, right? 
Correct. So we have another piece of property. It's an hour north of where I live. It's about four and a half acres with a home on it. And we purchased it a couple, about two and a half years ago as a, you know, this is eventually where we want to end up kind of thing. So um, we've remodeled it. We've worked on the property. We've um, tore out a lot of trees, cleared a lot of areas. Um, but it's, it's just not really feeling like that's where we're supposed to be. And so we're at a, we're at a point now where we need to decide, um, you know, is this really realistic for us to, so we do have this other property up North. It is about an hour from my home, It's four and a half acres. Um, and it has a home on it that we've been remodeling and, we love the idea of having animals there or having more of our garden or other activities that we're interested in on that property, but it does feel a little too far away to be up there regularly um, on a daily basis, obviously, with it being an hour. So that's kind of where we're stuck trying to figure out what we can do now if we need to maybe sell that and consider something closer to us or really what our options are. Yeah. And yeah, an hour away is a long way to go every day, but it depends on what you have on that property versus if you actually need to go every day. So, of course, if you had a garden there, you know, the garden is something that you don't have to go every day. It's a very different than livestock. And you could definitely put, you know, soaker hoses or sprinklers, like whatever you would need as far as watering needs. Because usually, especially in the summer months, that's kind of the biggest thing with the garden that needs to be done. So you could put those on a timer. So with it being an hour away, this is definitely not something that's very feasible that you're going to want to have to commute to every day because that's basically just going to make it like a day job. So there are some options, though, if you did want to keep that property and use it. And that would definitely be an area that you could increase with your vegetable garden and even with some of your fruit trees and that type of a thing on the property. Because usually, especially in the summer months, at least for us, the thing that we need daily maintenance is going to be watering. So you could either do soaker hoses or sprinkler and put them on an automatic timer or you could just go, you know, and I know you're in Utah, so you're usually a little bit, not a little bit, a lot drier than I am here in the Pacific Northwest. So I'm anticipating that that's probably in the summer. One of the biggest concerns is making sure everything has adequate water. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, It's really just a matter of um, keeping those things. We did have, when we bought the property, it had about 20 apple trees on it and, um, and they just really were not cared for. So we've we've pruned them and cared for them trying to see if we can salvage them um and but water has always been the biggest issue because we are also on a well up there and so um you know just always wanting to make sure that the sprinklers are running properly but also having an eye on those things i always get nervous not being up there running water just to make sure that we're being mindful and nothing's breaking or (laughs) or having any issues so that is the other variable with it. Oh, I totally understand that. We are on a private well too, but living here in the Pacific Northwest, we've never been in danger really of it ever running dry because water is something we have in abundance here. But I would definitely think about soaker hoses and you could put those on a timer because really with a soaker hose, I mean, even if say the automatic timer did fail, you're using such a small quantity of water that it would be something that wouldn't be as catastrophic per se as if it was like a a full-on sprinkler and it was going for a long time. 
is there anybody that lives close to the property that you know that could do just like a, a quick, you know, like check in if there was a time where you guys couldn't get there? Yes. So we do have a neighbor that's fairly close to us that we have a good relationship with that I think would be willing to just check on those things. My biggest concern with having a garden up there, honestly, is the animals. It's a much more rural area. It's a very small town and we're up on a hill um, and there's a lot of wildlife there. So there's tons of deer. Um, We really have no homes at all behind us for as far as you can see. And just a couple scattered below, but again, up kind of on a ridge. So it's incredibly beautiful, but we have had issues in the past with keeping animals out. So keeping animals out of the fruit trees, (laughs) I'll come up there and see, you know, the deer have really gone to town on my cherries or on my apples. And so we wouldn't definitely need to invest in some, you know, type of infrastructure to prevent to prevent that from just being demolished, honestly. Okay. And that makes sense. So then it comes down to, and this is probably where you're at right now, is the cost that it would take to put in the infrastructure so that they wouldn't decimate it. And then the time and the soaker hoses, which aren't very really, you know, soaker hoses aren't super expensive and the automatic water for that crop versus is it worth that investment in time for what you would be getting out of there? Or is it better to find maybe a local CSA or a local source for that extra vegetables that you would be wanting, you know, to have and kind of weighing those against each other. And that's kind of what, you know, we've done a lot oftentimes with things like uh, corn and different things like that when it would take a lot and we didn't have the beds prepared. And it's kind of like, you know, gosh, is it worth it? Or I can buy this cheap enough from a local source that I know uses good growing practices which one is my best option. And so, yeah, I think with, with all of that, especially with the vegetables, being able to put them up there, um, that would be something that you would consider now with the livestock though. um, And that could be something too, like if you have, you know, neighbors that are closer to your home that is in town where on your guys's third acre, you know, would be looking at a community garden type aspect if there's anything like that available or if you have neighbors that have the space but don't necessarily aren't using it and, you know, talk to them about perhaps doing like a small garden and there and then maybe doing kind of like a crop share type of a thing. Those are all options for keeping it closer to home, but it does require obviously relationships with other people. Um, And so you're going to have to kind of navigate that aspect. And again, is it going to be worth it to do it this way. And it may, if it's someone that you know really well, and it would maybe kind of introduce them into gardening and you guys could kind of share some of the, obviously share some of the crop and some of them and some people, depending upon kind of what you negotiate, I suppose they might not want very much of the crop, you know, but they're like, Oh yeah, you know, I'd love to see a garden that's being put to use and you can, you know, use it and stuff. But would that be something that you think would be an option depending on, you know, how well you know your neighbors around you? Sure. Yeah, I definitely think that that could be an option. As far as something like gardening, you know, that really does not require a whole lot of supervision other than just the care. Um, then I definitely think that that's something we can consider and find out maybe there's some others in my area who are looking to sort of do a similar thing. Um, so yeah, I think that that would be awesome and something to consider. What about um, animals? Yes. So animals, this is where, depending on what. I'm a novice, I think, on on 
keeping other animals really besides chickens. So if we were wanting to do something like, you know, just a couple of cows to provide our beef, I know I, right now I just purchased from a, um, a local farm, um, a friend of mine that raises, you know, all grass fed, really great beef. And we just buy it from her every year. But I'm just, if we were to, to expand something like that, how much realistically, how much supervision and um, how close do we need to be in order to have animals like that? Yeah, this is a great question. I'm super excited about this because this is something that um, I have a lot of experience in when it comes to the cattle and keeping them on areas that is not your home. Part of it is going to depend upon, honestly, your personality, which may sound like what, um, but it is your comfort level of not being able to see that livestock right outside your back door and knowing you know, that you don't have eyes on them type supervision um, all the time. So that being said, cattle in my our experience in my opinion i should say i find cattle the easiest of the livestock because they don't require that day like everyday care that we find that the pigs do and the chickens do so with the cows this is all going to depend upon of course how good your fencing is because <laughs> that's really okay. the, the main thing with the cows so if it is a it's a piece of property that has really good fencing and you're familiar with the cows so when you first get them or when you purchase them from someone depending on you know how old they are and i will say with the cows that um you definitely want to do more than one they're a herd animal and honestly for the amount of work that it's going to take you to put in the fencing and all of that provided that you have enough acreage which if you have four and a half acres you definitely would have enough to do two cows but they're going if you only have one cow they don't feel safe and if there's other cows nearby they're going to want to be with the herd and so you're, you're going to have more of a likelihood that they would try to escape but they're just going to be a happier animal all the way around and feel a lot safer if they at least have a, a partner so that they're in, it might be a little tiny herd because it's just two, but they're in that herd environment. And really as, as far as cost goes, because then you guys could sell, you know, that other beef and then you would be making some of your money back making, you know, depending on the price of beef and how much you have to put in to begin with kind of providing your beef for free or helping to negate some of that cost. When you first get the animal, you're really going to want to watch them as to see their personality. And so this is where not purchasing from an auction, but maybe being able to purchase from a lo local farmer, like perhaps your, your friend that you're already buying beef from, if they don't sell any of their extra calves, um, as, you know, if they're only doing them as beef, they may know somebody else. But that way you can get a handle on watching that animal and knowing, is it a, is it a fence crawler? Is this a really nervous animal? Because in any animal, when you first bring it into a new environment, it's going to be a little nervous. You know, it's going to take them a little bit to settle down. So that way, if you can talk to the farmer and hopefully have a relationship and it's an honest farmer, <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll tell you because you don't want you don't want a cow that's really uh, a nervous um, or flighty type animal because they're going to be much more likely to crawl through fences or to get panicked and to go through a fence, etc. And if you have one that's like that, then even if the other one's not, they can influence them to a degree. Um, but that being said, if you've got a good fencing in, and we don't run hot wire for our cows, 
uh, we mainly because we just have too much property and our power goes out and we like to just put in the fence and we do use barbed wire for cattle. So once that fence is in, um, you know, and, and that type of thing, then really with the cows, if as long as they have water, which you can get automatic waters and get large enough tubs that you know that they're not going to go through that in one day, or if, you know, if then the automatic water will kick in to fill it up, especially if it's not where you're being able to be there every single day. And again, when you're first putting these systems in, it's always great. Like you said, you do have a neighbor who could just check the, check the water to make sure that automatic water is working or, you know, that they're not going through it too fast. Obviously you wouldn't ever want them to run out of water. It's even more important than feed. Um, And then with, you know, your feeding systems, like I know you're in Utah, so it's going to depend upon, you know, how much pasture you have through the summer months that's growing naturally because you guys are drying there or drier there. But ideally, you would have enough acreage and pasture that you wouldn't have to be feeding throughout the spring and the summer and into fall, really just, you know, those obviously cold months when the grass grows dormant. So in those instances, you know, you still are going to want to check on your cows and your herd, um, you know, if, you know, every, you know, every you know, every, if you've got that person that can just put ice on and be like, yeah, they look fine. Like they've got water and they're eating and, you know, they're just, you know, everything's good. Then you could just go and check on them a couple of times a week, provided they're not, you know, like close to calving or something like that, depending if you're just raising them from beef, then you won't be dealing with breeding issues and all of that. Cause then that requires a little bit more, more eyes on more frequently, but really, and then when it comes to the winter time, you can do like, we do the big round bales. And if you just have a couple of cows, cows and you're doing it in a large feeder, then they're not going to go through that in a couple of days. You know, those big round bells we have, our herd is seven cows and we're going through one of those big round bells about every four to five days. So that provided they have water and stuff, you wouldn't have to be actually out there physically feeding them. You know, you'd want to go up like every four days to check, you know, that type of a thing. And like I said, provided that that there is a neighbor that can just kind of keep eyes on them to just let you know if there's, you know, anything or you want to make sure really, so this is something where you could either have the neighbor do it or possibly look into something like a, a you know, a, a game cam or something like a camera that you would be able to look at from home. And I have no idea on the expense of those or the tech involved, but I know that it's a possibility <laughs> that you could look at and just be like, oh yeah, the cows, you know, the cows are in the field and they're not like exhibiting any odd behavior, that type of a thing, because mainly it's if they, you know, were to get out. So that's where you want to, you know, have eyes on that they've got water. Um, you know, that they're not looking hurt or acting sick or something like that, and that they actually are in the pasture where they're supposed to be and they're not out roaming around. And like my my brother, for example, um, he has never had acreage and he has one of the largest herds actually in our value. I don't even know. I don't even know how many cattle he has because he has them in like, I think four or five different fields. And some of them are close to 50 miles away from his home. And so he, you know, like one of them is just right up the road from us. So there's been a couple of times where he had a, a calf that was a fence crawler that would get out and, you know, we just would go and put it in and let him know like, Hey, you might want to come check fences. This one's gotten out, you know, and that type of thing. So it's having that relationship with your neighbors that if something did happen until you could get there, that they would possibly be willing to help. But he's raised cattle like that for, oh gosh, probably over 15 years i'm trying to try to think back like am i now (laughs) how long has he had the cows but for a really long time so it's actually it is very doable with the with the cattle um if it's not on your property just kind of knowing you know those things 
and when you first get the cows, especially you being new to the cattle and that type of thing in the beginning until they're settled in and you're kind of seeing what their, you know, their routine is like, how fast they're going through the feed that you have, depending on the time of year, et cetera, you know, you probably will want to be at the property every day checking on them for the first, you know, week or so. Um, but then you'll kind of settle into a routine and you won't have to be there every single day. Okay. Okay. So if I, if I decided to go down that route and put some cows up there or, you know, like I said, or even find somewhere closer by um, maybe a friend's property who has some more room. But if we were going to add cows, um, how much realistically, how much help or assistance beyond what's in the academy that I've already, you know, scoured through, how much help and assistance from or outside sources realistically would I need to start with those cattle if I don't have any experience with them? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So one is, you know, finding finding the source of, of where, you know, where you're going to get the cows. And so that it's, um, are you going to buy them as weanlings? So, you know, they're a fairly young cow. And then, you know, and, and of course, um, most people, I'm a, you're wanting them as beef animals. So most people will look to get a steer, which is a male cow that has been castrated. And then a heifer is an unbred female cow, which is what we call cows. I know I'm sounding quite technical, but I always get, <laughs> no, called. that's great. I get called out on this and I'm like, yes, I know the proper terms, but most people are, you know, when you're saying cows. So anyways, just, just for that. So most people will purchase a steer because the steer is going to, at a younger age, you're going to get more beef and more people prefer to butcher a steer versus a cow because the cow can then be bred, you know, back obviously. And then you can, can have a herd and they can produce more cows. However, we, and this may be the case for you. Sometimes you'll have farmers that have had a year where all of their cows end up throwing a bunch of heifers and they don't need, they can't keep that many heifers. And so they decide to sell them. And so you can, and this is what, because I'm not going to just, you know, I'm not going to sell my heifers to go then purchase a steer from someone else because that would just be dumb. But we don't need that many heifers. So we have raised and butchered heifers um, or, you know, as our beef animal, too. So just to preface that. So it's deciding, you know, where where you're going to get your cattle from. So looking, you know, if a local, local farmer, in my opinion, is, is going to be your best bet because you can go and look at the animal on the ground, at the pasture, look at their herd. You can, you know, really ask them a bunch of questions. Most places, if you're buying an animal from them, you know, are happy to answer your questions. And it could also be like a great resource, you know, if something, you know, were so that you did have somebody local, like say something happened, you're like, man, I'm just not sure if this is like normal behavior that you would be able to contact them and, and ask them like, hey, I've got a question about, you know, whatnot. And they're just somebody local to, to you. It would really be your best bet. Other times there are auctions and you can go to cattle auctions and you don't always get bad cows at auctions. The issue for me is you just don't necessarily know what you're getting. You don't know where that animal has came from. And especially if you have an existing herd for us, like bringing in another animal, if they have, you know, diseases or that type of thing, then we want to kind of keep them quarantined. So I just prefer to get from a local farmer or a local source where we can actually go and talk to them and, and see the stock, you know, that, that we're getting and what they come from and conditions, et cetera. But those are usually the main option, the two main ways that you're going to, you know, get your cows when you're starting. 
And then, like I said, is really making sure that you have a really solid fence. The thing with cows is they are a larger animal, but if they, they're like a mouse, uh, if they can get their head through it, they can push their body through it. <laughs> and, and so and the grass is always greener on the other side. And so we do barbed wire, but we put, they're, they're called stays. They're metal stays that you um, put in between. So you have like your expanse of your fence posts, right? And then you've got the stretch of the barbed wire. So in between, like right in the middle between those, the, the two fence posts, um, we put those metal stays. And that way, when the cow tries to reach their head through the fence, the wire doesn't stretch as much. And so it makes it harder for them to get through the fence. Um, and you know, Okay. So those are those are really good to put in, we have found. But like I said, yeah, just going through the fence, making sure that it's, you know, is really nice and strong is good. And then with the cows themselves, you know, it really is for the most part, it's your, you know, your feed and your water. So it's going to be you're going to want to be finding some different feed sources because most of the time, ideally, for the kind of like the best size, most people like to butcher at two years old. And so you're going to be taking them through depending on, uh, we always butcher in the fall because they're coming off of, they're still on the gain. So meaning usually during spring and summer, they're on fresh pasture. They have a lot of green grass. And so they're gaining the most weight during that time. They're not using their energy to stay warm because it's already warm out, et cetera. And so you want to butcher when they're on the gain. If you wait too far into winter, then usually they do lose some weight. And so that's why most people butcher in the fall. Plus, like old time wise, they would butcher in the fall because then they could age the meat. It was colder out. They could age it. They could cool it. And then they could keep it, you know, throughout the whole winter month with, without it going bad. So there's kind of a couple of reasons most people butcher in fall. But that being said, you're going to have to feed throughout usually two winters if you're doing it that way. Now, if it's a really, you know, if the, if the steer is a really large steer um, or for whatever reason, you're like, we need to butcher it like one and a half. Say the calf was born in the spring, um, like in March or April. And so, you know, you go around and, and hit the next and it's a year old. And then if you were to butcher that October, it'd be like a year and a half. So we've done that too, where we're like, we don't really want to buy enough hay to take this animal for another, you know, all the way around one more winter, it's already at one and a half years old. It's a pretty decent size. We're going to get a good amount of meat off of it. And we've decided to butcher then, but you're going to get ideally at two years is when most people do it. So finding a hay source is going to be key because if you are buying from like just going to a local feed store and buying your bales of hay, that's pretty much the most expensive way possible to do it, quite honestly. <laughs> um, you know, because they're buying they're they're you know they're buying their hay wholesale from a farmer, and then they're bringing it in, and they're paying the shipping. I'm not they're not trying to rip people off. That's not what I, I hope I'm not. That's what I'm insinuating. But you're going to pay the most because they're the retailer, not the wholesaler. So if you can go directly to the farmer or directly to whoever's doing the haying and buying from them, you're cutting out that middleman. So therefore, it's cheaper. But then you're going to work out either, you know, either you're going to have to haul the hay and transport it um, in most cases. Um, and so you've got that part. So is, is, you know, if you have a truck or if you could rent a truck or borrow a truck, if you don't have one in order to move the hay and then the storage part of the hay, because you're going to need to buy it. You ideally want to have your hay source lined up at the beginning of summer, at least here, because oftentimes they'll sell out. So you kind of want to go to the farmer and be like, hey, I, can you provide me with X amount of bales? And then 
you know, they'll let you know when the weather conditions are right and they're doing the cutting and then the hay is bailed and ready. And they'll be like, okay, hey, come, you know, come get your hay. Um, so, and often, okay. yeah, so oftentimes, at least for here, because I know we're in different states, but I'm assuming a lot of this is going to, to transfer to any area. If the, it's like the smaller square, square bales that you can move easily, like in a pickup truck and by hand, if you come and pick them up out of the field so that the farmer's not having to either pay help or do it himself and move it into a barn, sometimes you can get a lesser cost per bale that way. Um, and so then you can just get them directly out of the field and then bring them to wherever you're going to store them. And then sometimes they'll just put them up in the barn and then, you know, you can go and get them that way. So it kind of depends on the, the farmer and you could ask them um, about that. Or the big round bales, which is what we feed, those for us have been the most cost effective is to do the really large round bales that are wrapped in the white plastic. They look like the big, large marshmallows. And the reason for that is we don't have a barn. So if you're going to be storing hay for the whole winter, you obviously need an area that's going to be really dry, you know, that they're not going to get, you know, snowed on, rained on, et cetera, turn moldy, that type of thing. And we don't have a barn or a garage or anything like that on our property to store those bales. And so the big marshmallow bales, uh, which is actually haylage, so it's, it's, it's fermented. So it actually has um, higher protein and we feel like it's actually better nutritional wise for the cattle. Um, but that way we can store that even here in snow and rain and we don't have any issues, but we do have to have a tractor to lift them. In the past, we didn't have a tractor. So um, we put them on a flatbed truck that we borrowed from my husband's work and then him and I together could get them rolling and push them off to unload them without any equipment and then when we would go to feed him though he would open one and we would have to manual just by hand like unwind however much we were feeding for the day and then feed that by hand and then make sure that bale that was open was covered really well until we had fed it all we do have a tractor now which allows us to move the full bale put it in a feeder out in the field so then we're only feeding like i said about that every four to five days right now with the size of our herd um so there, there's kind of different options with your hay depending upon like i said like equipment the amount of work you're willing to put in daily as, as far as physically unwrapping those big round bales and feeding um and storage areas to store the hay which is our biggest factor as, as to why we went to those round bales was because we didn't have a barn i see i see okay so when we talked a little bit about having you know if we were to hypothetically have two to three steers on our property that we were raising, um, how much space is really appropriate for to kind of mark off or to fence off for them? So yeah. what would be the appropriate amount of space per, per steer? That's great. So here, and I do not know your guys's, um, so I would definitely get a hold of if you have like a lo local cattlemen's association or even a local farmer. I don't know if the county extension office would have these kind of details or not. That would be another thing you could check. But I don't know for you guys how much grass you get per acre in like peak growing season. So for here, if you have an acre of full pasture per animal, then you don't have to supplement at all until we hit the winter months with feed. But I know depending upon, you know, how arid you are, like, of course, if we go like down to Southern California, you need acres and acres per animal. So that's why I'm, I'm kind of giving a little bit of preface for people listening in. And, and I would definitely have you check that, too. Um, but space wise, we say here about an acre per animal uh, for I should say for cattle, for a large animal like a cattle or a horse. Um, 
if you want them to be pasture raised. Now, of course, you can do it on smaller, um, but they're going to tear up that ground and then you're going to have heavier parasite infestation when they're on a smaller amount of pasture because they're grazers and they're going to, you know, they, they actually will, um, especially horses, if they're like in a stall, they will try to go to the bathroom in one area that's away from their feed. But if they're on a smaller piece of land, then it's just going to be naturally, that's only going to be doable for so long and you're going to have more cross-contamination. So ideally, I would say at least an acre per animal for space. Now, as far as not having to supplement any grass, depending upon your climate, they may need a little bit more. I see. Okay. Okay. And then the other question that I had was, would it be feasible to consider putting a greenhouse on the property that's an hour away? Um, Or is that something that is just not really realistic? That's a great question. And honestly, with the greenhouse, that because really with the greenhouse, we're, we're trying to create a false growing environment, essentially, right? And so mm-hmm. if there's the humidity levels, there's the heat. And I know even when I'm using my high tunnel, which I don't have heated, so I'm not dealing with really checking temperatures and having to adjust a heater and, and really finessing those humidity levels. Um, even that, especially during the spring and fall, when I'm trying to put plants in there that can't go outside yet, um, you know, in the morning, I'm having to go and open it up once the sun comes out, otherwise it gets too hot. And then in the evening, I'm having to make sure I get everything closed down early enough that I'm still retaining the, the heat from the day, but not too early so I don't cook things. So for I feel like it's a lot more hands-on work, honestly, um, with that, that greenhouse, just because you're having to constantly like monitor the environment and make changes, especially as the sun comes up and the sun goes down. I think that that would probably be a harder thing to do. Now, if you had, you know, vents and things on different automatic timers, which I have never had a heated greenhouse. So I want to make sure that I, that, so I've never had a heated greenhouse where I've actually put all of that into play. I just know that dealing with the high tunnel, it feels to be a lot more hands-on when we have a, those temperature changes. Like I said, spring and fall in the summer, I just leave it open and, and, I, and I'm not doing anything because I'm not trying to manipulate uh, the environment the plants are in other than keeping the rain off of them because of blight. So I would think that the greenhouse, if it's an hour away and you did need to make an adjustment, um, that that would be, that would be a lot more of a pain, honestly, <laughs> um, to, to just keep on top of. Right. Okay. So maybe even considering if we did want to do something like that, doing that at our property at home, because it does involve a lot more, you know, involvement with me daily. Yeah. And then, you know, after you get it up and running at home, you know, after a while, you might be like, oh man, like I've really got this nailed and now I know exactly what needs to be done. And then you could perhaps move it. But I would say, especially, you know, when you're, you're kind of figuring it out, I would think starting it at home where you can just really be there would be ideal. Okay. And then is there anything else that maybe I haven't considered or that you can think of that would work with just smaller spaces? So, I mean, we, we incorporate some vertical gardening um, on the side of the house. We are using our yard area for gardening um, for some raised beds. Like I said, I do have the chickens and raspberries and some fruit trees. Is there anything else that's maybe on a sm- 
you just the the footprint of it is a little bit smaller or um, more realistic to have in a backyard rather than on a larger piece of property. Yeah, I mean, I think there's always things in the in the backyard. Like I know you said you have raised beds and you are doing some vertical gardening, which is awesome because vertical gardening gives us, you know, obviously in the, the same amount of space, if you're growing vertical, you can usually get more in there. Um, so depending on how far apart, and you may or may not already be doing this, but on how far apart your raised beds are, could you use like the large hog or cattle panels between so that the archway is actually over the walkway? or between the raised beds so that you could grow things up on that archway that would give you even more growing space in the existing beds you have. So you wouldn't have to put in more beds. So I could, and I saw that you have how you do your beans and that you were going to be rotating different things out. How much, I I think it's just going to be a matter of figuring out how much sunlight I have if I were to put that in, because I'm, I don't know that I could put it in, over or in between raised beds, but I could put it in in another part of my yard. It just doesn't get quite as much light. Gotcha. So I'd have to, yeah. Yeah. Um, so it kind of depends on the crops, like um, and it's how much, you know, direct sunlight that they're getting. So for beans and squat, pretty much the main like warm weather vegetables, um, you know, like pole beans, cucumbers, uh, winter squash, all those kind of vining and trailing things, you know, they really need at least six hours of full sun every day. So it would depend on that area of your yard, you know, and you could, especially the the sunlight, of course, in the summertime is usually further overhead. So we're actually getting more direct sunlight during the summer months than we are right now. But I would just kind of look at it and see throughout the day, like wh- how much sunlight is it actually getting? But then there's a lot of things, you know, like like your peas and things like that, that will grow in less amount of or like partial shade. They're going to have to have some direct sunlight. Um, very few will do really well in full shade. Um, but you've got some things that will do just fine in in kind of partial shade and that aren't getting that amount that, you know, things like um, a lot of your cool weather crops will do OK that way. So like Brussels sprouts, um, you know, lettuce, uh, peas. Um, kale, you know, those types of things. So you may be able to do, and especially you in in Utah, how hot do you guys get there during the summer months? Um, I would say the hot, we may have a few days over a hundred, just barely, but it's really not terrible. I would say nineties is pretty common throughout the summer. It does get warm, but um I mean, I grew up in Phoenix, so nothing is as miserable and hot as Phoenix. <laughs> okay, so you're a little bit warm. I thought your guys' summer temps were a little bit warmer typically here than, than where I'm at, which is why I was asking. So, you know, during the middle of summer, actually, that might be an ideal place to do things like cool weather lettuce or things that would typically bolt or doesn't typically do so well in that hotter weather. So like Brussels sprouts, um, you know, those types of things, uh, you know, beets, you know, kind of any of those cooler weather crops, I would, I would test out. And like I said, if they're, if it's getting at least six hours of sunlight a day, then I would definitely try some things like peas and beans. I think that they would do fine. Um, but I would just kind of test it. If you have the space and really the hog panels, uh, you know, we just used per one hog panel, we had two metal T posts. So one on each side. So really it's a pretty low 
cost. I mean, there is some expense. It's not like it's free, but it's not a super big investment, both on the labor and or the hog panel itself and the T posts. And, you know, if you decide later, you're like, man, they, like it just didn't really grow that well in that spot. Well, if you're going to have livestock, you definitely can put those T posts and those hog panels to use even with cattle, <laughs> you know, or with chickens or something else. So it won't go to waste, but I would test it. Um, I would try and maybe just do one this year and just kind of see, you know, how it goes. But I would definitely um, try to use that area if at all possible. Well, I'm excited to try all these things. I, maybe what I'll do is I'll I'll work on all these projects and then just have to send you send you some update pictures and see how everything's going. Okay, and this is my ridiculous question that I'm <laughs> if a cow if I have a cow that gets out, how do I get it back in? Okay, it's not a ridiculous question at all because <laughs> most beef cattle are not halter broke. Now, a milk cow, dairy cow, most of them are halter broke because you're bringing them in every day, obviously, to milk them. You, you need to be able to have hands on. Beef cattle are not halter broke. They are not tame. Like I, we can't go up and pet them. They're not, they're not pets and they don't have that. So it's a very good question because how else are you going to get them in? So we are grass-fed, organic, pasture-raised. However, we do buy a couple of bags of organic grain every year and are, we have them grain trained, which is probably going to sound really funny. But basically what that means is we will put a small amount of grain in like a coffee can or a bucket and shake it so that they immediately associate this grain with that sound. And then we feed it to them just, you know, in the little feeder, you can get little feeders, we have a little trough. So we aren't grain. We're not giving them grain every day. We don't give them grain even every week. We're not like grain finishing. And between six cattle over a year, two bags of grain is actually not very much at all. But the reason right. that we do this is it's just like a kid with candy. They love the grain. Uh, it's sweet. They love it. They don't get it very often, but they know when they hear that sound that they're going to get the grain. So we'll do this too. Like when we need to load, um, if we're taking our cows, if we're not getting, if we're not borrowing a bull and having a bull come to our pasture, then we'll take the cows that we want to have bred and we'll take them to my dad's field or whoever other, whatever bull we're using for that season. Um, and so to get them same thing, like to load, or if we have like a hurt cow, which we have never really had a cow that's been hurt that we needed to pen up, but that way we can put, um, you know, a feeder inside a small pin and we can shake the grain and then they'll come in to eat and then we can close it. And that's how we get them into the cattle trailer as well as we shake the grain up at the front um, and then they'll step in to get the grain and then we can shut the door. So that way ah, okay. we just make sure yeah so so in the beginning and like you'll kind of can ask the farmer like if they ever have grain are they aware of you know and that type of thing and then you'll know like if they've already heard grain and had grain then they remember it and so then we'll just you know feed it periodically we'll feed them some grain throughout the year so just to kind of keep them used to coming in you know where the grain is at and hearing it so then if they do get out <laughs> or we need to move them into an area for whatever reason then you know it's not like this super past distant memory they're like oh yeah so but it's not something we do daily or even weekly so we keep them grain trained in that aspect. that is super helpful i was i could not figure out how <laughs> i hear i have other people who i know who have cattle and oh, my cows got out or something like that. And I'm wondering how in the world are they getting these giant animals back that don't want to be back? <laughs> so that's really helpful. <laughs> yeah. And um, I have to say too, like um, the person that feeds them during the wintertime, which is usually my husband, I will be honest, like they know 
him and his voice because he's and they associate like he's bringing me food like when because he's the one that, that feeds the cattle predominantly. And so when we're shaking the grain and calling, you know, we'll also call them. So having like maybe a specific way that you call them. So it's just kind of like these little triggers that they associate with the grain. So definitely the shaking because you want that noise. So then later, like there's even been times like where a cow has started to get out. Like I, we left the gate open. Um, I'd like to say it was the kids, but it may have been me quite honestly. Uh, but this was a couple of years back and we were actually out of grain, but I had some gravel with a pail. And so I shook it to get them back through the open gate that I had left open which you can't do that very often because if you trick them and you don't actually have any grain, they're going to be like, well, I don't care if you make that noise, but in a pinch, it works in like just doing it once. But the reason I show this, so you want to get them associated to the sound of the shaking, but then we'll also call them. And so that they'll, you can have like two kind of like triggers, like a specific way that you call them when you're shaking the grain. So then you can use your voice as well as the, the shaking noise um, to help get them in where you need them to go. Should they get out or you need to put them in a different area? Gotcha. Okay. Talking about feed, how do I know what the appropriate amount is or which cutting I need to be purchasing um, for them? So I've heard the first cutting is of this season is typically not great. It has all the weeds in it. It's not what you want. And, but then I have to be aware of protein content just so these cows don't bloat and, and die. So how do, I, how do I know how to feed them or which cutting to feed them? It's a great question. So when it comes to hay, your first cutting typically has more weeds in it. And the second cutting is thought to be a better, a better cutting. It has less weeds. It's usually sweeter and has most people feel that it has greater nutritional value to it. Now, depending upon the weather where you live. So here where we are in the Pacific Northwest, very rarely do you get a third cutting. The weather, everything has to align and just be perfect for that to happen. And and it doesn't happen every year. So there sometimes can even be third cuttings depending on the climate that you live in, but usually you'll get a first and second cutting. With the cattle, when it comes to first or second cutting, we feed both and have not had any issues where we are. Now, and that's with doing... um, like regular grass and uh, Timothy orchard grass, just regular grass. Um, on our side of the mountains, there's really not a lot of alfalfa. And so we don't typically buy alfalfa and have alfalfa for the cattle. So just, just kind of putting the difference between the two hays there. Now with horses, because your cows have the multiple stomach chambers, right? And so they can eat a lot of different feed as compared to horses. So like we feed the fermented hay, the haylage to our cows. And we actually feel that that's better for than the dry hay. And in some instances, as far as nutritional and protein and, and all of those things. But with horses, you don't ever really want to feed the haylage. Their, horses are much more prone to bloat and to colic and digestion issues. They're a lot more finicky. I know we're talking about cattle, but just a little bit of difference. There, a lot of times people will take hay, I don't know, hay advice, I guess. Um, that really is important for horses, but we found hasn't been quite as important when it comes to the cattle, especially with things like like bloating and that. But I would say, like if you can get second cutting or third cutting, yeah, that is is usually considered to be better hay nutritional wise and flavor wise. So the the sweeter and the better tasting the hay, then the more that the cattle is going to want to eat it or horse for that matter. But it's really the quality of the hay I feel is more important than 
first or second cutting per se. So if it's, you know, a field that doesn't ever get, you know, fertilized or it has just a lot of weeds in it or doesn't have like a lot of really good grass or clover, uh, you know, that type of a thing, then first or a second cutting of a field that's crappy, forgive my French, <laughs> is crappy hay versus a first cutting of a really quality field then I would take the first cutting of the really quality hay versus a second cutting of a field that has not very good quality. So hopefully that makes sense. Right. Yes, I gotcha. Yeah. So yes, technically second and third cutting is really great, um, but we have fed first cutting. And if you, sometimes you get a mixture of both, like there, there might not be, you know, like we've gotten first cutting and then second cutting, like looking at the weather. Sometimes here in the weather, it can be hard to get a second cutting, believe it or not. And so you might, so sometimes we'll buy first cutting because we're like, we're guaranteed to get a first cutting. We don't know if we'll get a second cut here. And then if a second cutting does happen, then you can buy some second and then you can mix it because you usually we're buying in the summer. We're not feeding that hay yet. And so then we wait until we start to feed and then you can kind of mix, you know, and feed some of the, the better, higher quality versus some of the lower quality. You can kind of mix it together. You really, with the hay, want to make sure that it doesn't have mold in it, um, that there aren't any, you know, weeds that would be harmful to the cattle in there. So you kind of want to know like, you know, what, what was in the pasture, what's in the hay, and then that it isn't too dusty. So you don't want it to have a, a ton of dust in it. I mean, hay's not clean per se. You're going to have some dust and that type of thing, but you don't want it to be really dirty and have a lot of dust because then that can irritate, you know, them when they're, they're breathing and stuff. And you definitely don't want to have the mold in there because they won't eat it and you don't want them eating, you know, then if it did have high levels of mold, you wouldn't want them eating that and that type of thing. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. But yeah, I'm really excited to see your guys's path. Well, I really appreciate it. I, I feel definitely like encouraged and capable after, you know, after learning so much from you and, and there's all these things that we're always nervous to begin and we just really feel unqualified for and so it's really great just to you know kind of have the support and encouragement that you know even if it's not perfect it's really just a trial and error thing so we will work on it we'll have to we'll have to update you and let you know how everything's going yes please do I can't see I can't wait to see how it goes and you know we all this is the thing like and we I know I'm the same way when I'm starting I said like we all started at the beginning like nobody started born knowing all of these things. I mean, you know, I had the advantage of my dad did have cattle growing up, but even when we started, even though I'd grown up like raising cows with my dad, when we first started our own herd, my husband and I both like, I would call my dad and, you know, and ask him like, this is right, right? Like, this is really what you did, <laughs> you know? So they all start at that point. So don't let it stop you, but don't feel bad. Like, oh man, or, you know, feel weird about, it. sometimes we feel weird. Like, oh, I just don't know everything. Like, I feel like inadequate. Don't feel that way at all. Well, I really appreciate all your encouragement and I think that we'll give it a try and we'll just see kind of where it takes us. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, I hope that you enjoyed that episode as much as I did with Casey and that you are liking this new series and format that we're having here on the podcast. If you still have any additional questions to the things that I talked about today, please do either leave a comment on the blog post, which is at moleskinorris.com forward slash 292 for this episode, 
or even in the review. Leave a review of the podcast and you can mention this episode and list any other questions or things that you may have regarding this episode. And that helps me to know what topics to cover in upcoming episodes. I want to thank you so much for spending your time with me. I greatly appreciate it. And I can't wait to be back on here with you next week. Same time, same place. For now, blessings in mason jars, my friend. Thank you.